Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. This is episode 81, Hobozen. Hobozen! And we are in our hobo wigwam um, that Gumby and I created. And this is the first podcast that we're doing in here. And actually, I really like sitting in here. It's just really nice. Did you have something to say? I was just going to add that, uh, yeah, we haven't gotten the ventilation figured out, so there's no, like, warm fire in here, but it's a fairly mild day, and it makes a really good uh, windbreak, so it's still kind of cozy. And we're sitting on our grass mats that we made out of the broom sedge in the fields, and it's just, uh, it feels fairly zen right now (laughs) in here. So the... uh, well, what does Zen mean to you? That's a good uh, way. That's a good place to get started. Yeah, I was I was actually just gonna say, you know, the the reason why we're doing this episode, or the reason why I'm doing this episode is, I guess I um, I guess I've been feeling overwhelmed lately with all the current events. It's January 2021, and um, yeah, I just feel like um reevaluating, like getting back to basics. And as far as your question, like what, what do I mean or what does Zen mean to me? Um, a lot of it is finding that, I think the word is equanimity. Mm. Um, and kind of like once you find it becoming it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I just want to share this this one quote that comes from Basho, who was a Zen um, oh, practitioner. Haiku guy, right? Yeah. And I may mess up his haiku, but uh, it I wrote it down like this. Sitting silently, doing nothing, spring comes, and the grass grows by itself. And to me, that is so Zen because you're doing that thing sitting you're doing nothing and that's really hard, but it can be everything to do nothing. Yeah. I think of like what I felt like, what I was after when I first started thinking about like hitting the road, being a hobo. And it looked a lot more like, uh, these Zen monks that I I read about later in life. And, um, God, that's what Zen means to me is just kind of letting it all go. That non-attachment, just being able to like, you see this a lot in Taoism too, you know, uh, just following that flow of the river. And I'm so glad you brought up Basho. I wasn't going to bring him up. I didn't have him on my list of, uh, you know, people to, to talk about necessarily, but he's such a perfect example of a Zen master. He would just go out and be by himself for long periods of time in the wilderness and the caves and just be content. And he would write these haikus as like part of his just practice, you know, just um, his recognitions of truth. And do you know that he had a specific 
way to write a haiku. When Basho wrote a haiku, it had to be in one breath. You could not <laughs> think ahead of time. In one breath, he wrote every every haiku you come across that he wrote, he did it in one breath. Whoa. Spontaneously. That's why it was his Zen practice. Wow. I didn't know that. Um I also really like the end. Well, spring comes and the grass grows by itself. That's just letting it all go. It comes. And to remember that the grass grows by itself. We don't have to do anything. Yeah, I, I feel like there's so much in Buddhism. And uh, well, I guess I'll, I'll separate Zen from Buddhism. You know, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddhist born, the Buddhist, (laughs) the Buddha born 2,500 years ago, um, his teachings splintered into like 18 different schools almost as soon as he died. And of those 18 original schools, only one has survived, and that's known as Theravada Buddhism. Hmm. And then that um, transformed as it spread into the dominant Buddhism that exists today, which is Mahayana Buddhism. So everything except... Theravada Buddhism is a form of Mahayana Buddhism. And Mahayana is, uh, if you've ever heard the word bodhisattva, that's from Mahayana, not Theravada. Um, One of the big differences, as I understand it, is the original Buddhism, you would study, you would uh, meditate, and your goal was to escape the wheel of samsara. And that wheel of samsara was repetition. The same old shit over and over and over. Um, in the cosmology of that time, it was like one soul jumping from body to body to body. Um, but we can see it in a symbolic way in our own lives, you know, just getting up, going to the same job day after day, uh, bitching about politics, and then the new president's elected, and what do we do then? Bitch about politics until the new president's elected, and we can vote all over again, and bitch about politics. The sim- symbolism of that wheel of samsara and escaping that is so evocative to me because that's that was part of what I wanted to renounce and hmm. get away from too. Just this repetition. The, I, it was so fucking depressing to me to think a, that I would have to just get a job and go to work at the same time every day, <laughs> week after week, month after month, year after year. Just this repetition, this, this lifeless life. Um, but yeah, so that escape, that was called an arhat. That's somebody who just like, didn't get born again. But Mahayana taught that the goal is to become a bodhisattva. So the bodhisattva gets right to the gate of enlightenment and stops and says, I will not be fully enlightened until I bring everybody with me because I recognize that everything is oneself. So I can't be truly enlightened if my last thought is a selfish thought. I can't be enlightened until every blade of grass has awoken. So it's like hmm. supreme selflessness. And um, that got interpreted by the Tibetans to uh, Vajrayana, which uh, kind of mixed with their animist religion, Bon, and got re- like really interesting. That's a really rich interpretation of Zen. And went into China with uh, Bodhidharma as Chan. That was the precursor to Zen. And Bodhidharma was this hardcore motherfucker. Like, <laughs> he was this Indian that went into China, so they called him the blue-eyed barbarian. He looked weird by their standards. And he came in, and he was just known for being fierce. Like, 
He meditated in the cave for uh, nine years, and when he started falling asleep, he cut off his own eyelids. Oh, my God. And it was said that he threw them on the ground, and it grew the first little tea plants. And from that point on, monks could drink tea to help them stay awake when they were feeling sleepy. (laughs) So the mythology, the fact and fiction, gets mixed up, if there even is really a distinction, which is part of what uh, Siddhartha explored. But, uh, yeah, that got translated when it reached Japan into Zen which is what arrived on the the American shores. Damn, that's uh, very interesting there. But I threw that in because uh, some of what I might talk about is uh, not Zen proper, because one of the things that Bodhidharma did was people would, were having arguments about the dogma of Buddhism, like, oh, well, he said this. No, this is what he meant. So he took all those books and burned them. <laughs> and he said, sit the fuck down and shut the fuck up. And that's when he went in his cave and sat the fuck down and shut the fuck up for nine years, staring at a cave. So that's the essence of Zen. There's nothing I can say. There's no truth except direct experience. There's no dogma in Zen. Um, so, yeah, sometimes I just find some of the, do- the not dogma, but the uh, teachings, the Dharma in um, Buddhism to be kind of tied in with that, even though it's not Zen proper. And something I'm finding more and more to to get back to me because I'm all important. Tell us about you, Teresa. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, I'm trying to be like all Zen right now. <laughs> so I keep thinking about just recently. You know, I have a lot of stuff. I still have a lot of stuff, and uh, I get this strong feeling that if I can let more stuff go. Physical and just, you know, stuff that I'm carrying around in my brain, all these just emotions that I don't want to get rid of them, but I I really need to look at what's affecting them. Do I need to get rid of some of that stuff? Like Gumby, Gumby was mentioning, like all the politics. And I like crap. Gumbity. Gumbity. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah, that's that's been in the forefront of my mind. And I know we've done plenty of podcasts about, like, simplicity and minimalism, escaping society in five easy steps, and just being able to get to a point where you can see, really see what's going on. And that isn't to say it's to distract you. It's to get rid of enough that you can actually see like the deeper, like what's within you. Yeah, it was said that the Siddhartha Gautama, he was raised in a uh, the Shakya clan, which was like a, a kingdom. It was more like a chieftain. It wasn't quite a, like a medieval kingdom, but he was wealthy. He was really well off and sheltered. And he had these four sites. Um, as he ventured forth from the kingdom, as his driver took him out, um, he saw somebody that had a disease, which he'd never seen before. And it made him realize how powerless he was, even though he was a prince. He saw an aging person, which kind of hammered to him like how transient things were, that nothing lasts. And then he saw a dead person, and this showed him that, you know, everything's going away, and beneath the skin, this beauty and everything, he saw the insides of a person. And he realized, like, uh, he later called the human body a bag of defilements open at both ends. It really is, though. And uh, it was said that... I heard that Buddha said this himself, that if there had been another pleasure as great as sex, he would not have achieved enlightenment in this life. <laughs> oh, man. So it, all the stories I've heard about him as a prince, he had concubines everywhere. He was having like orgies. It was just he loved sex. So for him, I feel like a big part of that for him was him breaking his hold 
uh, sex's control of him. Um, it was a, a tool for him to to see things through. Where now he's not just seduced by the beautiful woman. Now he knows she's got like these guts, these slimy guts, this abdominal fl- abdominal fluid, these bad smells inside of her body. You know, <laughs> he's like, well, this is part of the truth too. I want the deepest truth possible. So let me not get distracted by the pretty packaging anymore. And the last of the four sights that he saw was a renunciant, somebody who had uh, given it all up to go after a greater truth. And Teresa and I have been talking a lot about renunciation because these four visions led Siddhartha, when he was 29 years old, to escape the kingdom. And there's this beautiful scene that's described in this story where he wakes up and all of his concubines are kind of strung all over the place, like laying there, and they got drool coming out of their mouths. They're snoring. Some of them are farting in their sleep. You know, it's just like suddenly for the first time he looks and he truly sees it. Like, oh, when people aren't trying to be something, when the masks are off, this is what we are. And we're, we're all like this. Like, is this really something to keep me chained? Is this something I want to enslave the, my whole life to? And he goes and takes one last look at his wife and his son, who he already had named Tether, Rahula, um, because he was already feeling this pull to something else and thinking, man, how am I going to leave a wife and a son? <laughs> and so him and his, 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 uh, servant, I suppose, Shantaka, they leave the kingdom. And I love this picturing the still night and everybody's asleep, asleep, except the Buddha and his uh, companion. And to me, that's very evocative. Only the Buddha is awake. And uh, so he renounces the kingdom and heads off into the woods. And he comes across this hunter and has to borrow his sword and shaves his head, cuts off all of his hair. And that's become a tradition in Buddhism ever since. It's a, a symbol of, I don't care what you think of me. I'm not about vanity anymore. I don't care if I'm beautiful in your eyes. I'm after something a lot more important than what you think of me. Um, trades clothes with the hunter, and that's the beginning of his life of renunciation, this pampered prince that had always known the finest of everything, now just having to go with nothing but a robe into the night all by himself and figure out where he's going to sleep, what he's going to eat, the whole thing. So, Teresa, I know you had some thoughts that you wanted to share on uh, renunciation, like what that means to you. So I just kind of wanted to set that up for you. I set the pins up, you knock them down. <laughs> oh, I'm going to knock them down. Um, I like what you said when you were talking about, like, Siddhartha's, uh, like, sexual, you know, addictions, passions. And, and that was a way for him to interact and to experience. But then it reminded me of when people find something that, whether it's, religion, whether it's, uh, knowledge, intellect, you know, reading books and, you know, keeping up with science. Um, at some point the tool though, it gets in the way or it doesn't, it's, it's no longer a tool. It's more of a hindrance than a help. And so something that I've, uh, you know, also been thinking about, and I've said it before is like, take the good, leave the rest and know when to set that tool down. Um, so what does that mean when it, relates to our lives and escaping society. Yeah, I've heard that uh, renunciation is different for every person, and I'm starting to realize more and more, I guess I've known it for a while, but it's uh, lately with just, I don't know, this is when the winter starts feeling really long, and then this whole inauguration bullshit, and, (laughs) you know, this censorship, and just the way things are going. Um, 
I realize how much physical stuff I've given up. And, you know, there have been times when I just pretty much gave it all up. And uh, I thought that made me a renunciate. I had renounced the world. I had renounced electricity. I had renounced, at times, even uh, gas, you know, like, well, not having gas, but <laughs> gas powered vehicle. I wish vehicle. you would. I will never <laughs> renounce gas. <sighs> but now I'm realizing how much, I don't even know if I can classify it as mental, but internal baggage I'm carrying around. Mm-hmm. Um, getting involved and caught up in all this, th- these politics and, you know, all that. I just feel it. I feel the weight, and it was heavier than my physical shit. The physical stuff, getting rid of that and renouncing it was easy compared to uh, my habits, my my perceptions, the mm. way I view things, uh, the things that come out of my mouth. Um, God, that that for me right now, if I'm going to, tr- you know, really try to follow the path of a renunciant, I got to start working on that a lot harder because I can't just put that in a big pile in a park and wait for other people to take it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I was thinking about... Um you know, the stuff when, when it's tangible, physical items, sometimes that can even seem insurmountable. But when you look at all, all the messages that are being stuffed into our heads, um, that can really be tricky to unpack. And it's, it's that same feeling I'm getting to when I, you know, like Gumby said, left all my stuff at a city park. I think I just want to let it go. Like there is no sorting it out. There is no, um, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but basically if you sit down and try to sort things out, I feel like you're just going to get sucked back into maybe another form of it. So I'm thinking for myself, like, not that I want to be ignorant of what's going on in the world, but am I even ignorant right now of the world that's right in front of me? Yeah, a lot of people, like in kind of environmental groups lately, uh, I run into this in a lot of books, like uh, authors and philosophers um, that are really critical of civilization. And almost uniformly, I feel like I see a lot of people attack Buddhism, like, oh, the Buddhists. And I get why, because a lot of people are interpreting these teachings in a really uh, pompous way, a way that like just creates kind of apathy, does not take responsibility, much less really try to do any good in the world. You know, I'm just going to sit here and try to shine loving kindness out in the world. And I'm not saying loving kindness is not, uh, in fact, an energy and doesn't count. But when you have somebody that's living in a big middle-class house, upper-class house, driving their vehicle and acting like the important thing is that they're not attached, and you know damn well they are, because if you steal their car, they're not going to be happy about it. Um, yeah, these Buddhists really give the, the Dharma a bad name, but that is not the Dharma. That's not the Buddha Dharma. That's not the Buddha's teachings. Um, it's just badly interpreted, just like when you when you study Jesus. This man seems extraordinary, and in no way do the modern Christians reflect hmm. this guy. So I forget where I was going with that. Did I interrupt you? Oh, no. I uh, I was just talking about, like, letting it go and, and taking the good. So you were talking about, like, Jesus's message or the Buddha's message and um, how, you know, just there's some people that <laughs> I don't know. They they don't they don't understand the message. And may, I mean, I'm speaking for myself, too. I don't know if I necessarily do. 
But I just know for, like, what I'm trying to do right now is make room for what I really want out of life. Um, And for me, that's just a feeling of, like, unencumbrance, just having freedom to not worry for the morrow and to feel cared for. Um, I don't know about, I don't really know about tribe, um, but to feel that I am cared for, whether it's by the trees or by the, you know, birds or by the rain mm. um, or by my, you know, fellow humans. Yeah, and, that, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, and to do my best to be a good elder for future generations. Yeah, I like what you were saying about being cared for, you know, about like maybe by the universe itself. Um, I know what I was thinking of earlier that I lost my train of thought on was that uh, the environmentalists tend to kind of throw the Buddhism under the bus. And I feel like we really need this badly. Um, I feel like the first thing we have to do if we see that there's something wrong with society and we wonder what can we do is to see it. And there's so many things out there that help us with that right now. There's documentaries, there's podcasts, there's uh, books, um, just so many things that help us question history to help help us see another picture other than what civilization has been showing us. But to me, there's two sides of that. And the other part is to see what's inside of us. For instance, I feel like I could sit down with Derek Jensen or Daniel Quinn or a lot of other people and say, you know, we are insane. You're insane and I'm insane because there's no way you can get brought up in a society that does what it does with our parents, with our teachers, reading those books, just inundated, indoctrinated in an insane culture and not be affected. And I feel like both of them would agree with me. Hmm. I feel like they'd both say, yeah, like we have definitely, we're fucked up. But then if you listen to people talk, it's like they don't really own that. Then they start act. They, they talk as if they were sane. They talk as if they completely believe they're making sense. They're rational. They're sane. And uh, maybe other people are crazy. That's the part I feel like Buddhism can offer us is that reflection to really sit with ourselves, to really see what's going on inside of us. I've heard it called emotional intelligence. And uh, then to make choices, you know, to get to, to strengthen that observer. When the Buddha set out after renounce, renouncing the uh, the kingdom, he sought out a teacher. He heard of this big, renowned teacher, and he studied under him and mastered everything he had to teach, um, all the techniques of deep medita- meditation, concentration, and uh, mastered it so quickly and so well that the teacher was going to name him as his successor. And uh, Siddhartha, not the Buddha yet, um, said, no, no, I haven't found what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the ultimate liberation, not just power, not just a way to to gain these skills, but to be free, the ultimate freedom. And he went to another teacher and the same thing happened, mastered all that. And so after the second teacher, he realized, I'm not going to find what I'm looking for through these teachers, through Hmm. these uh, yogic practices. So then he tried the path of an ascetic and starved himself. And he um, was so dedicated to it that a small group of people started following him and they wouldn't bathe. They were like, they looked like beasts or monsters out there. You know, they stunk. They were covered with dirt. They, they renounced any kind of comfort. They tried to, uh, torture the flesh to try in a way to try to strengthen the spirit. Hmm. And, uh, the Buddha was so, so hardcore about it that it was said that he could reach through his, uh, stomach skin and grab his spine. Mm. And he almost died. He fell in a creek. And 
you know, he's laying there and this girl happens to come by with like this bowl of like rice porridge or something like that. And um, the Buddha accepts some. She says, would you like something to eat? And he says, yes. And the other ascetics hear about that and they turn away in disgust and they're like, I knew Prince Siddhartha, his spoiled little ass wouldn't be able to make it. You know, he <laughs> look at him out there eating his bowl of bowl of whatever, you know, screw him. Yeah. <laughs> So they turned away from him in disgust, but as the Buddha takes that little sip of that bowl, he has a memory when he was in the kingdom, when he was still Prince Siddhartha, and he was sitting under a tree during a uh, a festival, and just by watching the grass, by watching his breath, by watching the, the insects around him, he achieved this level of absorption and concentration and peace, and it was said that the uh, the shadow of the tree that he was under didn't move. Hmm. So I'm thinking of you, Teresa, talking about like the universe caring for us. There's so much of that in the Buddhist story from a tree reaching down to help hold his mother up when he's born um, to this uh, the shadow, you know, giving him a sign like something important's happening. Um, and that was his first kind of window into the the truth is, I would say, his first step towards true freedom. And that's what we call the middle way. He realized it was like tuning an instrument that... Uh, if you have too much, it's going to get in your way. If you have too little, that's going to get in your way. Hmm. But to know when you have just enough. And doesn't that sound like something the Peace Pilgrim said? Like finding that, I forget what she called it. She had a different word for it. But uh, you'll find the same truth just repeated over and over for people who are seekers, who are pilgrims. Yeah. Um, she talks about finding your need level. Because anything mm-hmm. beyond your need level is getting in your way. Yeah. It's making you not happier, but less happy, less free, more miserable. We were talking about that. And that's what the middle way is all about. Yeah, we were talking about that this morning, exactly. We were, you know, discussing. It's, it isn't about becoming an ascetic. It's not renouncing because you feel like you have to. It's, I know that this pile of crap, whatever it is, whether it's a pile of books or a pile of food or a pile of, you know, mental anguish over the presidential election. It's not making me happy. And in fact, it's it's not only making me unhappy, but it's taking away energy that I could potentially put towards being happy some other way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it said in that part of the story after he reflects on the middle way, he's free of, you know, to me, that's interesting. He first, he got free of the wealth and all the privilege, and now he had to get free of the spiritual path. You know, to me, Hmm. that's what it's about. Now he's absolutely free. He's free to pursue whatever works. He doesn't care whether he's an ascetic or part of this practice. Um, And he puts his bowl, his little bowl that the girl gave him full of the rice porridge after he's eaten it in the water. And, uh, you know, he says, I feel like something's about to happen. I feel like I'm on the verge of the truth. You know, is this true? And the bowl goes upstream against the current. And so, again, we have this this relationship, you know, like the <laughs> river is like encouraging him. And that's when he vows to go sit under the Bodhi tree and not move until he's achieved full liberation. And, uh, yeah, even that part of the story, I like the coupling with the tree. Yeah, I was just thinking about how even... The Buddha, before he was the enlightened one, he was trying different things. And I think that's really what life is supposed to be about. Um, Maybe it is going to work, you know, nine to five. But like I said before, when is that tool getting in your way? When is it no longer useful? 
when you feel after three years or 10 years or 20 years at a job, like, man, this is really, I'm not doing anything anymore. I don't even feel alive. That's when you set it down. What do you think? Like, you're just going to magically get those years back at the end of your life. Like, this is what life is about. Yeah, that was a significant part of the Buddhist story, I feel like, is that he did experience that. He had all these concubines. He was having orgies and sex and, you know, everything he wanted. So it wasn't through never having it. It was through having it and then choosing exactly something else. So I feel like if you're, like, maybe you're young, you haven't had a lot of sex and you kind of feel like you haven't sown your wild oats, go, you know, like explore that, explore what you need to, because it's in the exploration that you find what's empty, what actually satisfies, Mm -hmm. and what becomes what Buddhists call a preta or a hungry ghost, this, this thing that can never be satiated. I learned about the hungry ghost mainly when I was smoking crack. (laughs) Um, They even called it chasing a ghost, which I find significant now. But you'd smoke that first crack rock, and it was so good. But inevitably, it goes away pretty, a lot quicker than you want it to. And so you spend all your money getting more and more crack, and you're chasing a ghost. You're chasing that first high, and you never get it back. Mm. That, to me, was like, oh, this, this is the hungry ghost. Mm-hmm. Hunger, hunger, hunger. It can't be satisfied. And it's when those people that are addicts, they never set down that tool. And, I mean, I'm not saying that it's that easy, but you did, and I feel like that was an integral part of your life. It wasn't that you didn't do anything that our society considers bad. It's just that you realized you had enough space, enough reflection to realize, like, this isn't working for me anymore. Yeah, and it's not just the crackheads, you know. It's like any of these people going to work or... It's the financial, you know, investor people on Wall Street, too. Yeah, how many people still use electricity in their houses when they know damn well, like, they consider <laughs> themselves environmentalists? Ooh, man, you just took it all the it way costs. there. I mean, <laughs> yeah, we're all guilty. I mean, we're in the van, you know, and we know we don't need it. We've been hitchhiking. Yeah. All of us have our crack rock and we like to villainize the crack rock because it makes the rest of us feel like that's like Scarface, like that's the bad guy. I'm not the bad guy because I don't smoke crack, (laughs) but we all have that thing and explore it. I feel like that's one of the things that happened when we came like encountered indigenous cultures. They had no idea what civilization was. So they were curious. Anybody would be curious. We are Prince Siddhartha. We've experienced civilization. We've had our curiosity appeased. We know what's here. Now it's time to have the fucking guts to be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves, was that truly satisfying? Do I feel full at the end of the day, spiritually full? Do I feel like I'm living the life I want to live? And to have the courage to renounce it. To me, that's what renunciation is. It's not somebody telling you to get rid of your shit. It's you being honest with yourself and like, wow, I complain about everything. My God, how many years has the summer been too hot and the winter's been too cold and now it's too fucking windy? And now, like, I just realized what I'm doing. I woke up to my life and now it's time to let that shit go. I got to renounce that. It's whatever you need to renounce and it's different for everybody. I would now like to interject a short story that I'm going to tell probably really terribly. Woohoo! Yay! Um, I first heard this in a recording from Osho. Um, you know, take the good, leave the rest. And 
I believe it was about just some guy that was like in India and he was sitting under a tree. Um, I've heard this story also called something like the fisherman and the businessman. So I'm going to try to not butcher this too terribly. But basically, there was this guy and he was kind of like lazily, you know, resting under the shade of a tree. It was like a hot summer day in India. And this guy passes him and he's on his way to uh, a construction site. They're building something. And he asks the guy like, hey, you know, I I see you're here every day. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to let you know, like, if you wanted work, we've got work. And the guy that's, you know, under the tree, like, lifts his hat up and he's like, well, why would I want to work? And he's like, well, you know, like, you could, you know, come and make some money. And the guy's like, well you know, why would I want to make money? And the guy's like, well, so you could buy things. And he's like, well, why would I want to buy things to make you happy and and feel like, you know, your life is full of things that you want. And he's like, oh, my life is already full of things I want. So thank you very much. I think I'll just lay right here under the tree. (laughs) You know, I just like, I've heard that story before. And at first it sounds, I've always interpreted it this way. Uh, the way I heard it was, and it's the same story, a guy's on an island and some rich guy kind of says, you can work for us. And, you know, he goes through all the benefits and like finally gets to the part where, well, what, what is, what do I get to do with all this money? You can go on a vacation. And he describes like him doing on the island exactly what he's already (laughs) doing. And I, I always thought that's so stupid. Why would the guy go and do all that to wind up where he started? But I just now, it's funny you're reading that because I just glanced at my notes and I saw this quote by Dogen. And here's a different interpretation of that that I've never had before. This is a quote by Dogen, who is a uh, this really well-known Buddhist master. And uh, I like a lot of what he wrote, but here's one. Before one studies Zen, mountains are mountains and waters are waters. Mm. After a first glimpse into the truth of Zen, mountains are no longer mountains. And waters are no longer waters. After enlightenment, mountains are once again mountains. (laughs) And waters, once again waters. Mm -hmm. Now, when you first hear that, you're like, well, what the fuck was the point of it? Like, so you can see what you saw before, and then the ultimate truth is, but it's the journey. So I wonder if it wouldn't be wise for that guy on the island to have taken that journey. And then to come back to the island and like... Maybe the island is something new to him now. Like he would enjoy it more. Maybe. I mean, it's, you know, it's, I don't know if I can compare him joining the corporate world as like studying Zen. Um, so there, there's kind of a difference. But yeah, there's something cyclical about this truth that Zen describes that I've always really enjoyed. It's like, it's like you can sit on the grass and look at the clouds and think they're pretty. And then you can spend this whole long pilgrimage you know, where you realize nothing is what it seems. Um, in in Buddhism, they talk about the three marks of existence. And they say that everything exists in this phenomenological world. Anything you can encounter is going to have these three traits. One, dukkha. And dukkha is interpreted often as suffering, but it's a bad interpretation. What dukkha is is more of an image of a wobbly wheel on a chariot. Like, it means something's wrong. Something's not quite in harmony. Something is off. Um, Suffering is part of that, but suffering can seem like a strong word. So, in other words, anything you encounter, it will lead to suffering. Think of your favorite food. Now think of eating it 
a ton of it every day. Mm. Uh, think of your favorite person. Now think of uh, living in a van with them, <laughs> seeing them like every minute of every Fuck day. Fuck you, Gumby. <laughs> Just as an example, an example. So I called you my favorite person. Aww. So, um, you know, it's, it's pointing out that, that nothing brings lasting satisfaction. Think of your favorite video game. Now imagine being chained to it and you can't do anything else. Every waking moment is spent uh, playing that video game. Mm-hmm. Another thing that says it's said that everything has as an attribute is Annika, which is change. It's all changing. There's no such thing as nouns. We try to uh, see the world in terms of nouns, but it's all changing. Everything is becoming something else. So you go home to your your wife. Your wife has new thoughts. Her thoughts have changed. Her, her body is changing. Your body is changing. Your desires are changing. Um, your relationship is changing. And you suffer because you don't want things to change. You don't expect hmm. things to change. But everything is like sand slipping through your grass. You bought that beautiful car. And now somebody opened their door and there's a dent in it. Now it's starting to break down. Now that car that was such a fucking giddy high days ago is a burden. It's causing you anxiety. Now you got to protect that car. And Jesus Christ, am I going to be able to afford to work on it? Everything has that. And the last thing is Anatta, which means no self. Nothing is what it seems. Um, and I love that. Like, I always think of Thich Nhat Hanh's example where uh, no self elements. He always gives the example of a piece of paper. If I know what to look for in a piece of paper, I can see the tree that made the paper. I can see the sun that fed the tree. I can see all the inventors that it took to make the process to develop this paper. I can see the people that fed those inventors. I can see farmers in this piece of paper. I can see everything in the universe in this piece of paper except the one thing I'm taught that it is, which is an isolated thing that I'm calling a piece of paper. Hmm. If I remove all the things that aren't pieces of paper, like I can't say the sun is a piece of paper, I can't say the farmer is a piece of paper, if I take all of the non-paper elements away from this piece of paper, it's an empty table. There's no piece of paper. There's no self. So it's kind of a, uh, it questions the whole idea of an eternal soul. It says you don't have one. You are a process. There's no you. And that's the fundamental lie that we get stuck with is this attachment to a self mm -hmm. that doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I was just thinking about how uh, our society has so quickly become self, even more self-centered than it was before with all the, um, I don't know, people that are making YouTube videos and dare I say podcasts and their Facebook pages and, and everything that's all about them and, you know, what they believe and what they stand for them, 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 them. And there's, it's all changing. You know, you may have different points of view you may have different experiences. You might meet someone that changes everything. And that's, uh, that's quickly becoming, um, few and far between experiences in life because we're all just kind of in our own safe little bubble. Yeah. Making ourselves vulnerable to that and trusting that process is so important. Um, when the Buddha sat under that Bodhi tree and said, uh, you know, I'm not getting up until I get fully liberated. It was said that the kind of the God of illusion, Mara, he 
his job is to kind of keep us all stuck in the wheel of samsara, doing the same old shit, believing the dream, believing, to me, it's almost like the basis of scientific thought, believing this is the only reality and anything outside of this reality doesn't exist. You stay here. You keep doing the job. You keep doing what you're supposed to do. It kind of keeps us all enslaved. So Mara was threatened by this this growing... Uh, this verging enlightenment that the Buddha was about to have. So the first thing he did, knowing that the Buddha liked sex, was to send his three beautiful daughters. And uh, the daughters came and tried to seduce Siddhartha, but Siddhartha had long ago seen through that. He had seen that bag of defilements open at both <laughs> ends. I mean, just imagine. I, I picture this, like, bladder with, like, two tubes sticking out of it. You know, that's what a human body basically was to the Buddha. But interestingly, he embraced the paradox, because in other times, he talks about how sacred your body is. Mm -hmm. It is the means of achieving awakening. You couldn't achieve this without your body to treat it, like, really preciously. So they were both true, but one thing it wasn't was this object, this thing to be grasped. So the temptation didn't work for the Buddha. Um, he was no longer tempted by things like that. The second thing that Mara did was to send all the armies of hell at the, after the Buddha. Um, fireballs, ugly, evil demons all charging at him. A horrific scene. And um, the Buddha was unmoved by fear. So the Buddha just sat there, and whenever things came into his perception, like what was fireballs and arrows were turned into flower petals and gentle breezes, oh, man. which is kind of a powerful lesson. It tells you something about, like, if someone attacks me, um, let's say with an insult, if somebody says something that hurts me, I have to meet it. I have to give it some kind of purchase, you know, some kind of, like, agreement for it to hurt me. If I don't allow it in... If I just don't agree with that insult, it's not an insult. It just washes over me like a warm breeze. It's sort of like, uh, what's that practice where you redirect mm. an attack? Uh, is it, is it Kung Fu? I wanted to say Kung Fu. Or Qigong or something? I don't know. Something like that. But it's sort of like, you know, that kind of thing that uh, for an attack to be uh, as deadly as it can be, you have to meet it. And if you're not hmm. willing to meet it, if you can redirect it, mm -hmm. you can kind of declaw it in a way. Mm -hmm. And finally, that didn't work. So Mara, in desperation, tries his third and final attempt, and he asks the Buddha, who are you? You were a prince. You, you, know, you spent your nights having orgies and eating the finest food while other people starved outside. <laughs> like, who are you to, to escape? And the Buddha smiled a little bit and touched the ground. And when you see statues of Siddhartha, you often see this pose where one hand, is, his fingers are touching the earth. And the earth bore witness to how long, through how many lives, the mm. Buddha had been giving himself. And there's these Jataka tales, which are like this compilation of tales that are really old, supposedly of the Buddha's previous births. And they're all about sacrifice. So one after the other, you see like, he was born a rabbit, and he threw himself into the fire so a beggar could eat. Mm. Um, just tale after tale of, like, non-attachment to self. Mm. So let's say you were with that rabbit. You were another animal. You might just be like, the rabbit's fucking crazy now. Like, it, she's dead. She's gone. What What was the point of that? Mm. But the rabbit understood a greater sense of self. This, this body was going away anyway. I wasn't going to keep it. You know what? You think I'm crazy? Now, what, 10 years later, you're dead too. <laughs> so 
it was this understanding that cultivated this life to be blossomed as the Buddha. And uh, when he touched the earth, the earth responded and all the trees burst into bloom and Mara gave up. And that's when the Buddha achieved enlightenment. And it was said among the other things that he realized was that the sense of self we're taught is a lie. That later he was to say, I alone am. And what he means by that is there's only one life. It's not saying I as the Buddha. It's saying I've so much completely given up this attachment to my one entity, my one self, that I am everything. <laughs> I am life itself. And you are too. The only difference between us is I've awoken to that truth. You haven't yet. You know, uh, I've got just these ideas jotted down and Gumby's got his, what he wants to talk about. And, uh, I don't know, this just feels like a very Zen meeting of our points because, uh, I have written down next on my list, kind of this, um, this idea that's been rolling around in my noggin and it's this, I've lived through some tragedies, um, not necessarily just to me and, and my family personally, but our community, like our, our bigger uh, sense of self, if you will. Whether they're hurricanes, big storms, ice storms, whether it's, you know, 9-11 here in the United States. And I've always felt like those type of instances, I can speak for myself, I, f I feel like very alive. There might be other feelings in there, but I feel very when I say turned on, not sexual, like I feel the energy come back. And I also observe people coming together. And I feel like this is very true, very natural. This makes sense for us humans. We are supposed to be like, when I say I don't want to say like in danger, but we're supposed to be like experiencing life and life isn't always this like sheltered, you know, home in the suburbs or whatever. So what I'm getting at is that feeling where I feel alive, I, I think other people do too after a tragedy, after something big. What if, what if we decided right now to choose that? Um, and what does that look like? So when I say tragedy, this isn't a tragedy. This is a choice of renouncing the electricity, renouncing the car, renouncing the, the home that you may live in right now, like a regular looking house. What if we made that choice, like a positive choice? Because we can, and we would be acting selflessly so that future generations would have a better planet, a better chance of living on this planet. Yeah, and I think that's one of the powerful things that the Buddha Dharma has to offer us, is that different understanding of self. Because if I just think it's just me and I stop at my skin it's kind of hard to give up shit, especially for idealism. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm right. I don't know if I'll plunge myself into a living hell. I don't know if I'll waste my life. I don't even have kids. Yeah, I'm just scared. <laughs> and I'm already scared of that shit, you know, because like even if I keep my job and do the supposedly the safer thing, all those same fears persist. 
Um, you know, I we did a take two on this episode. Was it this episode I talked about the four visions today? Yeah. The four, yeah. So we still have, those are the fundamental fears, and we still have them. You're scared of getting sick. That's the first thing people always say when we talk about what we're doing. What do you do if you get sick? What about health care? Yeah. We're still prone to disease. And what that's about is not the disease itself. It's the powerlessness. It's the fear of it. Yeah. Even with all the science. Oh, your science cured polio is what people like to say. Mm-hmm. Well, look at all the other things that have been introduced because of the way we live. Disease is still with us. And if the Buddhists are right, it always will be. It's part of the price we pay for being alive. It's a reminder that we are powerless. We still fear old age. Look how much we fight it. Our bodies are supposed to wear out. None of us, it's so rare to see someone who does it gently. Oh, remember that movie we just watched the other night, Elizabeth is yeah, Missing? Yeah. We, we get our skin creams. We get our Botox. We dye our hair. Uh, we try to work out at the gym until we get hurt. And then, like, you know, we have some kind of serious injury because we thought we were 20 when we're getting to be 40 and 50. Um, we still are scared of old age and death. My God. We're probably more scared of death than they were in the Buddha's time. Hmm. Um, we embalm bodies and hide them away in concrete vaults so we don't have to look at them. We still have no idea what happens when that heart, heart stops beating. And we do everything, everything, no matter how much destruction we have to, ca- to, to cause, to try to fight death as if it's an enemy, as if it's the most horrible thing that could happen. To cling to life with every ounce of your being. And I just find that extraordinary that those are the three visions. And let's not forget the renunciant. Still in our culture, again, more so than the Buddhist culture, who somewhat embraced seekers and pilgrims, these people, we don't see people represented like that in our culture. And usually if they uh, someone tries to do that, our culture, you know, in a hundred different ways, in a hundred different commercials, in a hundred different TV shows, tries to not denounce these people as nuts. At best, maybe lovable quacks, but not people on a true path. Um, and these four visions that motivated the Buddha's renunciation, I feel like they're still here. It's If you're alive, they're going to be with you. And I find that extraordinary. You know, the Buddha, he achieved his enlightenment underneath the Bodhi tree, and it was said that he sat there and remembered all of his former lives. And to me, like, you don't need to believe in reincarnation because the Buddha himself renounce the idea of reincarnation because he said, what can be reincarnated? There's no self. You know, that was a big way that he parted with the existing religion of his time is they're saying your soul jumps from body to body to body. And the Buddha says, there's no self. There is something that continues. There is a greater life, but there's not, there's nothing permanent. It's one of the three marks of existence. Nothing, nothing is permanent, including this wispy idea of a soul. And wow, when I thought about those three marks of existence and I think about those three sites, you know, that motivated him, I still feel like those are the things everybody's scared of that keeps them from renouncing. And that's exactly what they need to start renouncing. Surrender. You are powerless. When that disease comes, it's coming. If it doesn't get you, something else will. And if you don't catch a disease, your body is going away and you're going to die. That death is waiting right around the corner, and there is a choice. That's what that fourth sight the Buddha yeah, saw was exactly. about. That fourth sight was like the final lesson in that series of like, 
you don't have to just stay at home being scared to death and pretending like these other three things don't exist. You can choose to go after something bigger. And I'm being serious. I'm not, I mean, I am saying what if, but I'm saying, why don't we do this? There are going to be people who will still want this or that for a while. Of course, we're going to be wanting our pizzas and beers and this and that. And maybe you get them. But I feel like we'd be able to let that go. Well, actually, Teresa, I think you're describing part of the trap the way I see it. I just got into a discussion with somebody, and it was one of these. uh, There are certain tacks people will use to debate. And one that comes up a lot is people won't. And what I've realized people mean when they say that is, uh, like, people won't just give up everything. People aren't going to do that. The fact is, this world is vastly mysterious, and we have no idea what people will or won't do. We can make some pretty damn good guesses, educated guesses, but the fundamental truth is anything could happen. Somebody could have turned right their whole life and only one day, just for the hell of it, decided to turn left. What people are saying is, I won't. Like, I won't do that. And that makes me think, like, when you're saying, why don't we do this stuff? I think our real power is saying to hell with everybody else. Mm. I can't wait for them. I see what you're saying. Yeah. I alone am. Like, if you do it, at least one more piece of the universe did it. Because that's what you are. Yeah, and I I mean, I might be going uh, against what you just said, but I... How I, dare you? I feel like um, we or I would draw strength from knowing that what I'm doing is helping future generations and not just future generations of humans, but of all the peoples on Earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... Uh... I just want to finish up this next part of the Buddhist story because it's so relevant to uh, the things we're talking about here. Um, so the booty, booty, the booty, the Buddha got up from the, the Bodhi tree and uh, now he was identifying himself as Tathagata. I love this name, Tathagata. It means thus gone. Hmm. In other words, uh, the word Nirvana comes from, it's either Pali or Sanskrit and it's Nibbana. And so many of these words are describing an image. Hmm. This is an image of a candle flame being snuffed out. Mm. That's what Nibbana is. And so what happens when that candle flame is snuffed out? You're in the dark. You're you're everything. There's no distinction between you and me and us and them. It's just all together. It's Nibbana. It's this extinguish of that uh, striving, that, that, that temporary thing. So... The Buddha, he ran into this first guy, and he said, uh, the guy said, you know, who are you? And the guy said, I am the Tathagata. The guy said, yeah, maybe so. He walked away. (laughs) And I love that part of the story. You know, it kind of shows that the Buddha wasn't, like, glowing or anything like that. Like, if you weren't looking for this wakefulness, this uh, enlightenment, um, you could miss it. And when he comes to the... uh, Well, actually, I was going to talk about the Four Noble Truths, but our time is kind of short. So if you want to... uh, Continue with what you were saying. That's going to take a while, come to think of it. Maybe I'll come back to that. Well, I was just going to finish up what I had was um, just what this could possibly look like. Um, To 
take it, you know, to personally do this. Um, we've had episodes, you know, how slight a shelter. Um, we've talked about different ways that shelter could look, of course, including, uh, living in a minivan for a while. Of course, again, like I said, those, those are tools, even living in a, a wigwam style structure is a tool. Um, having more outdoor time and less indoors and less electricity, less plumbing, less stuff. So that's what I think shelter would look like. And it would take some adjustment. Um, but I, I mean, I think it's totally doable, at least for myself. Water. Um, you know, we had an episode on water. We bathe in creeks. We talk about washing our body, our clothes, etc., with no soap. We use fire to heat the water and we use the wind and the sun to dry everything. Uh, we collect cloud juice from the rain to drink. And this takes adapting. You know, we're definitely uh, <laughs> accepting hot showers for right now in the, the cold of winter. But at the beginning of winter, we were thinking that we could adapt and, and take our uh, dips in the creek each day. And I applaud us for doing as much as we did. And, yeah, go ahead. I applaud us for doing what we've done, but I also, like... That that whole idea of renunciation. I mean, I we struggle. I'm not sure some days how much better off we are than anybody else. I don't know that. Uh, that's one of the things I'm questioning more and more. Is like one of the things they warn you about in Buddhism is anger. They say uh, the Buddha said anger is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to get sick. There's so much outrage and anger in myself, in uh, people in resistance movements, what good is it doing? Um, seems like it's just wearing us down. I feel like I'm starting to wonder, are we on the completely wrong track here? Um, so, yeah, I'm kind of wondering, like, you know, it's good to, to simplify, like, the things you're describing, but I feel like the bulk of it I'm not sure we're getting any closer to it than much anybody else well, I, in a yeah. renunciation. I can see where you're coming from with that. I feel like, you know, it's definitely challenging to live in this way. Um, but I feel like each time there's a challenge that you live through, it makes you stronger, smarter, and more grateful. I mean, you even talk about going out on your houseless retreats and doing sur the survival overnights and how precious it is. Like we were talking about this morning, what if you just had a piece of garbage, a piece of litter from the woods that you could collect some water in? And what if you were able to make a fire? Well, that's true. But I think the difference that I'm describing is it's the contrast, I think, that makes things precious. So I feel like, say you do the things Teresa's describing, you catch rainwater to drink, you bathe in streams. Um, for a while, that's going to be tremendously beneficial. But you got to find some practice after that. For instance, we've been doing it about two years. I feel like we get about as much enlightenment from that at this point as other people do from their hot showers and flush toilets. Um, yeah, maybe it's the seeking. Like that was another part, important part of the Buddhist story is like he went from one teacher, when that didn't work, another teacher, then asceticism, then he just sat his ass down. You know, he was fluid. And maybe that's something like we're not doing enough of. That's well, the Zen that for us. And that's that's exactly true. I mean, that's kind of where this whole episode was was coming from. Was like, what else is there that 
we want to do? Like, what are we holding on to right now? Like the minivan, like the, you know, Facebook stuff. Um, these type of things that are distracting, they're, they're confusing, they're taking up a lot of mental space when that mental space and time and energy could be dedicated to a practice that's deeper. Yeah, like uh, a big criticism with Buddhists is, you know, like I said, the hypocrisy. But in the time of the Buddha, I mean, he was pretty strict. It was like, if you want to follow his path, you had to renounce everything. You were going to be like, you didn't own anything. You didn't just get to say, oh, it's about the attachment. I still get to own it. No, the fuck you don't. <laughs> like the Buddha didn't and none of his followers did. You give it up. You are homeless. Um, so, yeah, I feel like that that pursuit, you know, like that's what we need. We need something more personal. Um, the fact is, I mean, people just storm the Capitol, the fucking Capitol. They're calling it an insurrection. What good did it do? It looks like some kind of political theater, which it very may well have been, some stunt just to give them excuse to do to have more censorship, more control. Nothing seems to be working. I, I just feel like this Zen starts making me question, like, do we need a whole different path? And to bring it back to what you're talking about, Teresa, you know, that, that constant, um, I don't know, making it personal, that renunciation, that... that checking in with yourself. Like for instance, for us, it's not so much using electricity and everything, even though we still have some of those physical ties to, to society, plenty of them, but it's like our habits. Uh-huh. Like, you know, I was going to mention the, the four noble truths. <clears throat> I'll try to just talk about them really quick, but the first noble truth is the truth of suffering. The Buddha said, I only teach two things. One is dukkha, which I said suffering, but like I said, it's actually the image of a wobbly wheel. Uh, in modern day standards, think of it as that shopping cart with that wheel. Something's not right. Something's not smooth. Something's out of whack. Um, so the truth of dukkha. And this is like the symptoms. You go to a doctor and you, he's like, so can you tell me what's going on? You tell him the symptoms. You're describing dukkha. Whatever your problem is, if you have any problem, it's dukkha. If you've joined a religion... It's because of dukkha. There's something that you're avoiding, something that needs help, something that doesn't work, something you don't like. It's all dukkha. And it seems like so many different things. It seems like you've got 101 problems. But the Buddha says it's all the same thing. It's dukkha. And he says when you're alive, you know, you're going to have to be subject to disease, old age, and death. It's the price you pay for a mortal body for this existence. Everything else you do to yourself. He calls it the second arrow. Um, the first arrow is the arrow of life. The second arrow is just, you know, what we do to ourselves by complaining. Um, the second noble truth is the cause of dukkha. And this is like the diagnosis. So the doctor says, okay, so you've got a sniffle, sore throat, fever, body pains. Um, you have the flu. You have a flu virus. That's the diagnosis. So it's the cause of dukkha. And the Buddha says the cause of dukkha, he calls it tana. And it's like thirst. It's attachment. It's the hungry ghost. And we're attaching to things like those three marks of existence, things that can't be attached to. It's like trying to hold on to sand slipping through your fingers. That's not the way the world is meant to be lived in or experienced. There's nothing wrong with the world. 
But because we won't treat it the way it actually is, and we won't be in it the way we actually are, we suffer. We're attached to an idea of self that doesn't exist. It's a lie, and it causes all of our suffering. And it's really interesting, he says, this this thirst manifests in three root causes. Ignorance, which is the main one, we just don't know what we are. We have a complete misunderstanding of what's going on here. Aversion and craving. And when you think about Mara trying to uh, entice the Buddha away from enlightenment underneath the Bodhi tree, those three ways he did it were, one, his daughters uh, craving. Two, the armies of hell, aversion. In other words, if things would just stop, if we could just get rid of that president, I'd be happy. If you would just shut up, I'd be happy. If it would just warm up, I'd be happy. Craving is, if I just had this, I'd be happy. If I just could keep this longer, I'd be happy. Oh, if I could just get a little more of this, if I could just get that little house on that piece of land, I'd be happy. And the final thing that Mara challenged him with was self-doubt, ignorance. I don't think you know who you are. I'm going to question who you are. But the Buddha knew who he was. And he touched the earth and the earth knew who he was. And so that was dispelled. But that ignorance, we don't know what we are. So that's the cause, this attachment to self. And the third noble truth is the cessation of dukkha. So, all right, you got the flu. Is there any hope for you? Is that a death sentence? Is that just something you're stuck with until you die? And this is where I had the hardest time figuring out what the hell the third noble truth was. Everything else has got neat little lists and everything. This one doesn't. Not that I've found. And um, <clears throat> because I had to look so hard, it's become my, fir- my favorite noble truth. And it is where the Buddha basically says it's the prognosis. And he says it's good. No, this is actually curable. The prognosis is good. And you are not what you think you are. If you were this thing you're attaching to, yeah, you're pretty fucked. That, that's going away. It's going to get old. It's going to die. It could, a disease could hit it at any moment. But that's only what you're attached to. What you truly are is everything. You think you're a wave, but you're a part of the ocean. There's nowhere to go. There's nothing. You're everything. You are the universe itself. Where could you possibly go? What do you have to be scared of? You are the bear that may eat you. You're that, that, when you, the bear shits you out, you're the shit, you're the soil, you're the bear, you're the sun. You are just the universe ebbing and flowing into itself like water. It's beautiful. There's nothing to be scared of. And this is like enabled the courage of the Buddha. I love this noble truth. And so you might say, fine, all right, I accept that on faith, you know, but how do I get there? And the fourth noble truth is the path that leads you out. And, uh, I feel like this is something like if you're a pilgrim, if you're taking on the hobo path, the Satefold path is really helpful. And it's not saying do not do this shit. It's just saying beware of this stuff. This is stuff mm-hmm. to look out for. It lends itself to problems. So you interpret it the way you need to. And it's divided into three sections. The first is morality. And um, let's see. Let me look at my notes here so I make sure I get these in order. Um, morality, sila. Right speech. This is emphasized more than any of the other ones. Be careful what comes out of your damn mouth. I am so not good at this. They say, let the words that come out of your mouth come through three gates. Is it true? 
and that your truth will change, but to the best of your ability, make sure that your words are true. Is it kind? Sometimes kindness can be harsh, but I look at kindness again. It's up for your interpretation. It's just for you to question yourself. Does it nurture? Does it help? Are you trying to make yourself look good by tearing somebody else down? Um, and I struggle with this one quite a bit. You know, we, we live in a culture that's so easy not to be kind. And finally, is it necessary? Would you not be better off just shutting up and listening? Everybody's trying to have a voice now. Everybody's talking. We, we don't listen. And then we talk about like, oh, we can't hear the voices of nature anymore. When's the last time you shut the fuck up long enough to see if, they, if there's even anything being said out there? And uh, right livelihood. You know, when you make your way through this life, there's no, in Buddhism, there's no, I was just doing my job. You don't pick a job that does bad things. There are other ways to get through this world. And the Buddha proved you can even just give up everything. Renounce it. Be a renunciant. And right action conduct. And for right action conduct, they've got the five precepts if you wonder what right conduct looks like. It is... um, Avoid killing, so life is precious. This is why a lot of Buddhists are vegetarians, even though the Buddha himself was not. He had a different interpretation than the people that have come after him. Um, But try to minimize that. I'm not a vegetarian because I believe life is equally important whether it resides in a plant or an animal, and I have to eat something. But to try to minimize how much damage is done, to be thankful for that, um, whenever you can, to preserve life. It wasn't back in the Buddha's time, but you know you could be a vegan and still be um, killing things because your not only your food is being grown on uh, individual, I mean on animals, you know, homes, but also if you're using electronics, your server farms are being built on top of other beings' homes. So it's it's bigger than just eating meat. Yeah, much bigger, and uh. It was a tradition in the Buddhist time for every monk to have an alms bowl. And whatever got put in your bowl when you went out begging. And begging was considered a huge part of the practice. Think about everything involved in begging. Um, How much you have to address your ego, your pride. You know, every day you're reminded, like, I'm not better than anybody. I'm a beggar. I'm going out here and I'm begging. And whatever gets put in your bowl, that is the Buddha. Whoever that person was that just put that in the bowl... That was the Buddha. The Buddha's not confined to one body. That was his I alone am, his realization. Everything is the Buddha. So whatever gets put in that bowl it belongs in there. And if somebody puts meat in there, well, that's what you're supposed to eat. But never go to a place where somebody has to kill the meat for you was the you know original teaching. But again, we have to interpret that. Non-stealing, don't take what's not given. Um, again, up for interpretation, but I like the gist of that, you know. To, uh, to me, that has a lot to do with the land and my relationship on it, you know, to try to minimize how much I have to take and to try to give thanks and ask permission more. Um, non-lying, again, speech. Non-intoxication. Be careful of clouding your mind. I like my beer and I like my weed, but uh, it's just saying you better be careful of that. If you want to be a truth seeker, you want your mind as clear and awake as possible. Mm. If you want to polish that mirror and reflect the universe clearly, how is sugar and caffeine and uh, weed and beer and whatever else you might put in your body, is that helping or hurting? Just be honest. Be mindful. And sexuality. Sexuality can lead us astray. And uh, you have to interpret what's appropriate for you. The Buddha said just 
no sexuality at all. You know, it's a waste of energy. But Buddhists interpret that now. You all always see it as inappropriate sexual behavior. So mm-hmm. <laughs> you decide for yourself. It's like Buddhism light. Yeah. I was just thinking about when you were talking about, like, keeping your body clear um, that black child's pledge that I read during oh, yeah. the uh, Dead or in Prison Black Panther Party episode, that that spoke to me too because it's not about like looking super svelte for you know getting into casual sex or whatever. It's like what can I do to honor this body that's doing this great journey, this work? That's all I had to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, to finish out these uh, this eightfold path, those were three of the ones that had to do with morality, right speech, right livelihood, and right action. Um, and then the next three have to do with meditation, samadhi. And that's right effort. So if you, I, I've, I've meditated with people before, and a lot of people give up and they say, I can't do it, I can't meditate. Like anybody can meditate. I don't think you understand what meditation is. It's these three elements, right effort. Um, and the Buddha, he would say that this life is precious. Everything is on fire. The world is on fire. Your eyes are on fire. Your body's on fire. He's saying like there's this urgency. Time is short. It's all going away. Act. Put your effort into where you want it. If you want to achieve a liberation and to wake the fuck up, you don't just get there by accident. You You don't get there by reading a couple books and then going and taking a break and playing a video game. The more effort you put in, the more you get back. And so the Buddha's saying like, you know, it takes effort to sit down to not talk. It takes effort to do that every day. Right effort. What would you say to someone though, who like really, really, at least they think they love the comforts, you know, the video games, the intoxicating beverages. Like, I mean, that person may or may not be listening to our podcast, but they also may or may not have considered, you know, going down this path. Um, and they are like, yeah, but I kind of like really like playing video games. Well, I mean, as you can <laughs> tell, I'm really inspired by this stuff. And I just, I mean, I drank, a, I was drinking a beer right now. You know, I don't think it should be like, oh, I, I can't benefit at all from this stuff if I don't go 100%. What it reminds me of is if I make compromises, what I get back is going to be compromised. Hmm. So... I got to question where I'm putting my energy. It's to me, these aren't commandments. These aren't like thou shalt not. It's more like uh, little mnemonic devices to start asking questions, mm-hmm. to become aware, like pay attention. You know, I mean, pay attention to everything. That's one of the like, there's a Zen story of this guy that visited this teacher. And he's like, I'd like you to make me a, a painting that depicts like the most important truth of Zen. And the guy wrote, awareness. And the guy said, that's it. Can you add anything to it? And the guy wrote awareness. Mm -hmm. The guy's like, come on, there's got to be more. And the guy wrote in bigger letters, awareness. Mm -hmm. He's like, this is the heart of everything. Wake the fuck up. Start paying attention to your life. Mm. Don't worry about the future. The future doesn't exist. Quit dwelling on the past. That's gone right now. And that's what sitting down is all about. Because when you sit down, you'll see memories come up, but you're working on recognizing them for what they are. And man, when you start recognizing them, like, oh, this is a memory. Oh, this is a memory. Oh, I'm worried about the future. You know, you start practicing identifying the shit. You realize how little of your time is spent right here. It's alarming. 
even when you think like, oh, I just noticed a flower, you immediately go into this other thing about another flower you saw or what you're going to do with this flower. Or maybe we should plant vegetable this, the vegetables this spring. You barely spend a moment just with that flower without polluting the moment. So that's what the sitting down is about. And so I'd say to that person that likes video games and everything, if any of this speaks to you, explore it. And if you can't, if you're not ready to completely give it up, fine. But just try to realize what's happening. Mm -hmm. How's that helping your path? Maybe you want a path that involves video games. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no thou shalt not. You're not going to hell for it. If it's helping you wake up and you can be honest with yourself... You know, that's another thing the Buddha said is if you try what I teach and it doesn't work, don't do it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but we've got that right effort. And that was a good segue, Teresa, to the next one. Right mindfulness, awareness, presence. Whatever you're doing, know you're doing it. That's one of the things you're practicing when you sit down. When people say, I can't, like, I can't meditate. They're saying, like, oh, I thought I was going to, like, imagine I was on a cloud or whatever. No, maybe that, if that's what happened, know it. If what happened is you just talked to yourself the whole time and thought about like arguments that you were having with people that weren't there, know it. Mm -hmm. Neither one is better than the other. Both of them, if you're paying attention, is meditation. Yeah, you can't be attached to that perfect, you know, feeling of bliss that you may have maybe one time if you're lucky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes I get into what I call the zone and I feel so good. I feel that expansive oceanic sense of self. But uh, most of the times I meditate, I don't feel that. And I don't have the expectation like, oh, I'm going to get it. That's not what it's about. That's why it's a practice. I'm practicing observing. I'm not practicing feeling good. That's the equanimity you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I feel bad. Sometimes I feel good. But if I sit down and observe it, I start realizing more and more these things aren't so different. One is not to be run from and the other pursued, craving and aversion. You know, it's all kind of the same universe. They're different waves on the same ocean. The things I want to run from and the things I want to run to. And finally, right concentration. And this is basically training your mind. There's all these stories of like the ox, the wild ox, your mind being compared to an ox that's gotten loose. <clears throat> but the way you train your mind is focusing on your breath. And I love that. It's so simple. If you're alive, I don't care if you're black or white or old or handicapped or anything. You're breathing. And what a beautiful thing that you can just practice even if you're asthmatic, even if it's raspy, even if it's sporadic, even if it doesn't come out even. It's not a matter of breathing any certain way. It's not how you breathe. It's paying attention, practicing. No, all right, my mind wandered again. Sit, sit. Look at that breath. Notice on your exhale. Notice when you inhale. Notice if there's a little pause between exhale and inhale. Over and over. It's a beautiful focal point. It could be anything, really. But the breath is just so easily accessible. And that's what the Buddha taught. It's like, use your breath. This is probably a little off topic, but I really liked the other day when you asked me, like, can you hear that sound? It's behind all the other sounds. Or you said something like that. And it really just, it not only was a device to kind of clear my mind, like make me stop everything for a moment, but then it really was like, wow, there is a sound behind all of this. Like behind all those thoughts, behind all those distractions, behind all of those, you know, worldly ties and, and addictions, 
there's something else going on. Yeah, I've been feeling really uh, unsettled in my life lately and feeling like, man, all these things that felt like the right path so recently, I'm, I don't know, something's not serving me anymore. And uh, it's not a feeling like, I definitely am not feeling like I want to go and get employment and get health care and, you know, a wage job or anything. But something's missing from what I'm doing, and I think it's what I'm describing, what I just described. I'm not meditating anymore. Meditating, when you're not doing it, can seem like such an arbitrary thing. Like, oh, you know, you could go do a yoga, you know? (laughs) Just like, oh, you meditate, how nice. But we forget what it is. That it's not some arbitrary thing like, oh, I need to have a fancy Easter name for it and everything. You're sitting down, and you're shutting up, and you're watching. That is powerful. It's so simple. It's so human. You don't need a religion for it. And when I don't do that, I start feeling the difference. I start getting carried away in my thoughts. I start thinking my thoughts are me. I start forgetting about that other, what I'm calling an oceanic self, that absolute reality. Because I get so involved in the relative reality. And the relative reality Those are the waves, and it's a rough fucking place. It's a scary place. It's a stressful place. And if you're not careful, if you're not doing some kind of practice to smooth that shit out a little bit, you become ineffective. You're just burning yourself out for nothing, for nothing. You're not waking up. You know, I hear a lot of people throw around like, oh, people like us, you know, that have woken up. We haven't fucking woken up. (laughs) You ain't woke? Yeah, this whole woke culture. Give me a fucking break. Like, we have cheapened the idea of being awake greatly. Um, it should be a grandiose thing, you know, a big, like, awake. People aren't shouting with cardboard signs when they're awake. People are doing what needs to be done. And uh, I think that's another thing kind of gets uh, Buddhist, like, Buddhism uh, villainized with the environmental crowd as they feel like, you know, if you're a Buddhist, you're just going to sit there and stare at your belly button and not do anything. <laughs> but I'd say uh, there's this guy, Tick, oh, I can't remember his name. It sounded like Duck. But during Vietnam, quite a few, few Buddhists, you know, talk about a protest. You're out there like occupying some land. You know, they went right to the capital, set themselves on fire, got in a meditation pose and sat there and burned to death right in the middle of town. Talk about a protest. So just because you're a Buddhist doesn't mean you're apathetic or you're just a tool of the state. You can find your way, maybe more effectively than ever, to do something. And I feel like the most important thing we can do that we have the most power over is simplifying. And to me, that's an intrinsic part of Buddhism. And fuck you Americans for taking that part out of it. These middle class and upper class motherfuckers that think they can keep all their shit and still call themselves Buddhist. Uh, That disgusts me. But that's not Buddhism. Um, And finally, just to finish up this Eightfold Path, wisdom, pana, that's the last section. And the two aspects of uh, wisdom are right thought or right intention or right resolve. It said those three different ways. That means, what are you aiming towards? You can put all that effort in, but to what? What do you want? So if it's liberation... You know, having that right intention, that right commitment, that right resolve. Like, I want it. I'm going to get it. That was the Buddha when he sat under the Bodhi tree and said, I'm not getting up until I achieve liberation. 
It's the courage of the lion. It's fucking all about having big, hairy lion balls. And we can all have those big, hairy lion balls. Right thought, right intention. That's part of wisdom. Knowing where you're going. And right view and understanding. To me, this is a beautiful part of wisdom. It's understanding what you are and what you aren't. It's the waves versus the uh, the, the ocean. Um, it's the broken glass then, realizing that everything in your life is going away. So every morning you wake up and your car hasn't broken down, celebrate your car. <laughs> you know, because, like, it's going away. You know that it's its destiny. And every day that, like, you wake up and, you, you know, your friend's there with you. That relationship isn't going to last forever. Celebrate your friends. Celebrate your dog. That's broken glass scent. It reminds us that the glass, its destiny is to break one day. It's going to break. You're lucky to have every day with it. And also the Zen cooking. Every uh, This universe is full. It's the belief, the faith that like everything we need is right here if we know how to look for it. And man, when you're a, a wilderness survival, a hobo, a scavenger, you get to see that a lot. You start putting shit together. It's amazing what you just start pulling out of the woods right when you need it. Yeah, during the pandemic for the past almost year now, um, I've been, I've been buying food because, um, the dumpsters have been uh, a little sparse. I believe that, uh, food pantries are picking up a lot of the food and distributing it, distributing it to a lot of people. And what I find myself getting into the habit of doing is every time we go into town, I kind of, um, I stock up and what it leads to is a lot of, um, I don't know, apprehension, like a lot of like anxiety around what am I going to make today? I don't know. Maybe I should have, oh, this is going bad. Oh, what am I going to do about, oh, I already have some more of this and we already had that yesterday. But if I just had one damn thing that maybe somebody gave me or I found foraged, wouldn't I be happier to like, wow, look at this oyster mushroom that we found. Like we could totally have this and eat it and be completely content with it. Yeah, and all these things are mutually supportive. Like if I <clears throat> if I try to eat simply now, I know there's a part of me that's going to feel like, God damn it, I really want a Bojangles biscuit. But Chicken if I meditate, biscuit. I am practicing sitting with that. I start realizing like, oh, that feeling is not me. I can actually like not throw a temper tantrum because I want a Bojangles biscuit. I can just recognize that and it's going to go away. It's temporary like everything else. Pretty much the only thing that's keeping us from enlightenment is Bojangles chicken and biscuits. So Yeah, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to read this. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a uh, Vietnamese monk. I think he's passed away now. And he wrote this in his book, The World We Have, A Buddhist Approach to Peace and Ecology. And uh, this is in line with the, uh, the wisdom, you know, the right understanding. In the garbage, I see a rose. In the rose, I see the garbage. Everything is in transformation. Even permanence is impermanent. Whenever we throw something away, whether in the garbage can, the compost, or the recycling, it can smell terrible. Rotting organic matter smells especially terrible. But it can also become rich compost for fertilizing the garden. The fragrant rose and the stinking garbage are two sides of the same existence. Without one, the other cannot be. Everything is in transformation. The rose that wilts after six days will become a part of the garbage. After six months, the garbage is transformed into a rose. When we speak of impermanence, we understand that everything is in transformation. This becomes that, and that becomes this. Looking deeply, we can contemplate one thing and see everything else in it. 
We are not disturbed by change when we see the interconnectedness of con and continuity of all things. It is not that the life of any individual is permanent, but that life itself continues. When we identify ourselves with life and go beyond the boundaries of a separate identity, we shall be able to see permanence in the impermanent or the rose in the garbage. And to me, that's a big part of that, that perspective, that understanding that is so important to somebody trying to renounce this shit, this garbage of society, the stuff that doesn't serve us. Um, so yeah, that was the prescription, the fourth noble truth. Um, how to achieve, you got the flu, prognosis looks good, here's what you have to do, the medicine you got to take. So I knew that was going to kind of go on for a while because actually I skipped a whole bunch of stuff. The, the Buddhist lessons are kind of fractal. They just go really deep when they seem at, at, at surface so uh, simple. But if you want to wind us up or if there's anything else you want to say, Teresa. Yeah, I really liked what we uh, explored today and I got to kind of talk about a little bit of what I'm going through, what Gumby's going through and uh, just a little kind of check in with our mental state here. And uh, I want to read this listener right in from Vito, Vito from Durham, North Carolina, right here down the street. You got to do a Durham accent. Yeah, I don't, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> this is a Durham accent. Just listen to Death Cult on Stitcher platform. So that was his first podcast ever, and he really enjoyed it. Great stories, and you two are so good together. Ha <laughs> ha He doesn't know us. One that stuck is the recollection of near-death experience, courtesy of Hemlock and the waiting. The waiting. Oh, yeah, that was when we almost killed ourselves. No, that's when you almost killed us. That's when I almost killed ourselves. Uh-huh. That was terrible. Um, Vito says, I hope for that acceptance, but my own brush was full of fear and out of control. Even though my ideas of death have shifted, the memory still rattles me. More recently, I see life as a call to participation in a greater life, like a cell might in an organ system within a being. The only job in life is to be ourselves, and death is everything else. A bit too vague to be useful, right? And what does that mean for the clinical death, a.k.a. no breath nor beats? Not sure. Well, in the meantime, I also cling to life and fear death. As your storied Zen master's example shows, now drop the sticks, now pick them up. Mm -hmm. And uh, since he mentioned Zen and he was touching on a lot of things that we talked about today, I thought I'd choose that listener right in. Yeah, I really liked Death Cult. I liked the uh, stuff we were talking about in that. Um, last, late last autumn, early winter, I didn't really talk about this on the podcast because it was kind of personal. I don't want to share everything. Um, but my mom had a heart attack and was in the hospital. And we didn't find out about it until my birthday, early November. And uh, On his birthday. Yeah, and my mom's not in the best health. So um, there's a little while there that I thought this was it. She's not getting out. There's no way. Like the pandemic, uh, her health, like heart attack, her second one. Um, this is probably it for her. And I'm, I can't even visit her. And, um, you know, I was struggling with all this stuff. What are the implications of this? What am I supposed to do? How am I even supposed to feel? I just felt really unhinged. Um, and I was kind of listening back through some of our podcasts randomly and just randomly death cult is the one that came up and it was so bizarre 
to be reassured by your past self (laughs) about death. But it really reminded me of like, oh, yeah, death is not the enemy. And uh, yeah, man, that that episode just that was really cool. It was right on time. You know, I remember I enjoyed making it. But uh, to hear it right at that moment randomly was like. It was one of those moments that I had to kind of question my sense of self because it didn't feel like I was talking to myself. You know, it was like the universe was talking through my past me to my the, mm. the universe of my present me. Mm-hmm. It just really was kind of a mind-bending moment that's hard to describe. But yeah, uh, actually, Vito is one of the people that we have met. Um, well, you've met. Well, you've met him too, I think. Well, you met his wife. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, Vito's a deep thinker, and uh, thank you for writing in. Um, so honored that your first podcast was ours. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no place to go but up. <laughs> so, God. yeah, and God, there's so much to say about Zen, and yet there's nothing to say about Zen. We, we, this was a take two, like I mentioned. We did almost 40 minutes of like a podcast, and I just stopped it, and I'm like, this doesn't feel right. And you know, this doesn't feel right either, but uh, I guess we're just going to let this fly because. I mean, basically, it's all about sitting down and shutting up. Everything you can say about it <laughs> isn't quite right. There's one one last Zen thing I'll share that they talk about the finger pointing to the moon, that you can't talk about truth. You can only provide the finger to the moon. The moon is the truth. And you can't touch the moon. You can't describe it. You can't capture mm. it and own it. The best you can do is help lead somebody there, but they have to get there themselves. So not that we could lead someone there. We're, we're trying to find our way ourselves. Um, but yeah, of all the things to try to talk about, I was super excited about this one and it has been very challenging to try to do it justice because, uh, these ideas and there's so many other, the Buddha liked lists and there's so many other powerful lists that just blew my mind. And I still carry with me and think about that we couldn't get on, uh, get to, but, uh, Maybe some other time, and I invite you to just sit the hell down and shut the hell up. <laughs> Try it. Watch yourself. Yeah, it'd be kind of a boring podcast if we just did that for an hour, but maybe sometime. Oh, we should have done that. That uh, would have been so fucking zen. That would have been totally zen. Maybe next time. But uh, until then, you can check us out uh, for the time being on our uh, Facebook page. Hopefully it won't be taken down. Um, it's oh, escaping yeah, society. Censorship is getting really bad. So I'm kind of thinking, you know, we say in our, our theme song, you better listen up because we probably won't last. I think we're probably not going to last. <laughs> so, yeah, I got a feeling like censorship is about to come down like an iron curtain on this country. Um, we're already getting hit with it a little bit, like with Facebook memes and stuff. But, uh, yeah, just wanted to throw that in there. Like we th- this Facebook stuff and these resources might not be around that much longer. Yeah, we have our website, which, again, temporary. Everything's uh, impermanent, changing. Um, but, yeah, our website, escapingsociety.weebly, B as in basho. Um, nobody knows how to spell that. Dot com. And uh, on our website, you can find the contact form to reach out to us, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. Um, you can also look up our YouTube videos, Escaping Society. Actually, it's on our Escaping Society website. Um, a button up there and we have a donate button. Um, like we always say, we're in the process of escaping society and, uh, yeah. So there's our alms bowl. 
on the, on the website. Anything else you have to say? There's so much, but <laughs> I'll just, just say no. Okay. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Talk to you next time. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it, cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no address.